Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 315. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now, I'm doing something with this show that I hardly ever do. I don't even, if I might have done it once before, I don't know. But I'm recording it in the evening. It is quarter six on a Tuesday night. And that is just not me. Normally, it's nine o'clock, half nine on a kind of Tuesday or a Wednesday morning. Get it all happed up and done, but never on an evening time. And it, it just feels totally strange to record this this time. And it just so happens, you know, things have led us to, to record this time. I'm doing like it. Don't know. It just seems strange. So there we go. I'll tell you what's coming in today, show. First up is the main fiction, Glister by Dominic Green. Then we have a fact article, it's Science News, Mr. J.J. Campanella. Then our very own Ames H. Sturgis has got a promo for her gothic literature. She's doing a course, Mythgard Institute. And a little promo to tell you everything that's going on over there. So that is today's show. Jump in straight away to the main fiction. Now, I thought it'd be nice to kind of put the main fiction on because we had that at the end last time. So I thought, well, why don't we jump into this first one, you know, the main fiction now straight away. And it is a cracking story, man. This is, again, you know, there's some stories that you think, that's science fiction, can I get away from it? And it's just brilliant, fantastic. It's Glister by Dominic Green. I'll give you a little heads up about Dominic Green. Dominic Green was born in Birmingham, Though happily, the trauma has erased from his memory, leaving only dim, fleeting flashbacks of shambling half-human Hadrian's looming over his crib, crooning. 
His parents then moved to one of Britain's only nice places, the town of Bakewell. Bakewell is only nice because the government makes it so, i.e. prevents people from building parts of Sheffield and Manchester all over it. It is also a town without pity, but hey, Matlock is a town without pants. <laughs> Can you get where Dominic's going with this? Can you just get the way Dominic rules? <laughs> so... As a child, he thought the world was like Bakewell. Then he moved to Northampton, where he was disillusioned. Northampton has a tourist office, possibly the most helpful municipal office anywhere in the world outside of Chernobyl. Green is a product of both the British public school system and Oxbridge, but surprisingly unhomosexual. He is even married to a nice lady. He has pictures of her if you don't believe him. Green works in IT. Remember those adverts in newspapers that said, these are the hard times unless you're in software. They lie to you. He writes things. He has tried to stop, but is unable to. Some people have to go to the toilet regularly. He has to excrete offensive manuscripts at a constant rate. He also teaches Gong Fu, Kung Fu to you. You'd think he'd be good at it by now. <laughs> Way to go, Dominic. Glister first came out in Interzone 223 in the July-August edition 2009. Then it was picked up for the year's best science fiction and fantasy 2010 by Rich Horton for Prime Books. And like I said, this is just cracking science fiction story. Do you know what I mean? Just hits all nails on all heads. Stories narrated by Stephen Muir. And Stephen's done a fantastic, lovely narration there. Stephen, thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Glister by Dominic Green It was one S.I. hour after dawn, although the deceptive marshmallow carpet filling in Hell's Point was glowing brilliant white in the steady rising sun, Midas's primary was still well under the horizon. I knew this because I had been standing out in the open for over two hours, and I was still not dead. As Dark Companion was still on the other side of Midas, dragging all the world seas with it, I had a solution to that problem. There was now no water between me and the bottom of Hell's Point, three vertical kilometers downwards, and at this time of year, if I went in head first, I'd be certain to break my neck rather than floundering encased in ooze while things I couldn't see ate my face. The ooze might even be dry, cracked mud, though... That was unlikely at this time of year. Hell's Point had originally been named Hellespont by a human explorer with a classical education. The name had degenerated over time, or perhaps become more accurate. Every spring tide, the pull of two stars, one living, one dead, combined to send all of Midas's oceans thundering up this narrow channel, sometimes high enough to bubble out over the Galena Plateau it cut through. The Crushing Bore. I'd seen rocks the size of condominia rolling around in it like flotsam. And for the rest of the year, Hell's Point was simply a vertical, dizzying crack in the earth to the base of which no sunlight and virtually no gamma penetrated. Occasional foolish noobs still made very temporary settlements in it. The Robinsonade guaranteed lash-up company, more sensibly, had slung wire ropes across it and made a suspension bridge connecting Christopia Fields to Gelvillier Forest. At least I wasn't still in Christopia Fields. It was a long, long way down. I could see clouds drifting beneath me. It was, in fact, almost annoying when I heard Brad's concerned voice behind me. 
What are you doing out here, Skipper? I turned to her ruefully, grinning out a mouth full of rotten Robinsonade teeth, asking myself the same question. I'd had a ship once. I still had a ship, in fact, sitting moldering amid a thousand others in the heavy metal muck of Desmond Slough, a ship that was now useless to me. I'd bought the ship in a savage downturn in the ship market. Uh, she was a slaver, purpose-built to carry human beings alive, if unhappy, out of human space into the proprietor worlds. Unlike the slavers you've heard about in dramatic exposés and shockumentaries, this one had waste disposal, galley spaces, and rotational gravity. She'd been built by the old United States of America to dispose of its antisocial elements, but the bottom had dropped out of the market once Newtopia had started producing its first made-for-slavery clones. Newtopia was one hundred light-years closer to the proprietor homeworlds. There was no way the old inner systems could compete. Thousands of tons of prime product ended up dumped on inhospitable, marginally habitable planets and given a freedom it neither wanted nor needed. I'd intended to revamp the Marcus Crassus as an economy transit shuttle. With only the removal of half a meter of radiation shielding from the outer hull and the addition of a whole load of danger death can result from exposure to vacuum stickers on the airlock doors, I'd meet UN regulations for carrying fee-paying passengers. That is, if I kept off the main shipping lanes, the economical lanes, the lanes big star lines monopolized because they made the money. Have you seen the wee bijou flaw in my business plan yet? The family home had had to go, of course. For over a thousand years, my ancestors had maintained it, steadily surrounded by soaring blocks of what the European Housing Directorate proudly called VUV, which stands for Vertical Urban Villages. We had defended it against Wallace, Longshanks, Cromwell, and Bonnie Prince Charlie, depending on whose side we were on at the time, but we'd been unable to defend it against my own temptation. The land was at a premium. It was time to sell. So the Macquarie family seat had been bought by a sympathetic land grab consortium that had promised to put up new buildings in keeping with the original site. How it was going to do that in geodesic gunite, I had no idea, though I believe parts of Kinlochbill Castle's west front now adorn their corporate headquarters in Liège. Once I'd exchanged family home for ship, I'd only had to add 17 other post-grad qualifications to my solitary biochemistry degree before those same UN regulations would allow me anywhere near a spaceship. In any case, that was how I and the newly renamed Kinlochbill Castle ended up on the ninth planet of Atlas A, 440 light-years from Earth. Atlas A is a blue giant star, part of the Pleiades cluster, and its light hurts the eyes. The natives are a curious lot, a race who shouldn't by rights exist. Their star's age, after all, is measured in millions of years rather than billions. They haven't had time to evolve intelligence. The odds are heavily against there being life on their world, let alone civilization. That's why few ships ever explore the parts of the network that come out near massive stars. Life isn't often found there. There's no one to buy from or sell to, and no one to buy or sell. 
If anyone is doing anything out near such stars, it's dredging heavy metals. Giant stars swim in a soup of the stuff. The jack-in-a-boxes are protected from their own giant star by an atmosphere hundreds of miles in depth. Their world is still on the cool side of turning Venusian, however. It does occasionally rain enough sulfuric acid to dissolve a small child, but then I hear it does that in Beijing these days, too. The boxes are called boxes because they have the ability, in an aquafortis storm, to instantly deflate their pneumatic skeletons and coil up inside their acid-resistant brain case, like a cartoon character folding up into his hat. They do this if they're startled, too, sometimes prompting sociopathic Scott visitors to yell at them suddenly, purely for the evil fun of it. Gravity is high on Atlas A9, and cloud cover is constant. For that reason, those few boxes who ever managed to scale the heights of Nine's immense cloud-piercing mountain ranges became a class apart. Scientist and priesthood together squashed into one hat or box. Their planetary religion, and there was only one, it having spread very quickly and utterly mercilessly, centered around astronomical observation. It was boosted to new levels when the priesthood contacted beings from other worlds flying down from the sky in great white birds that farted tongues of flame. This is where I come in. In actual fact, by the time Kinlochbill Castle arrived on Nine, they'd discovered spaceflight and built over 100 telescopes the size of vertical urban villages in Nine stationary orbit. But the great white bird idea is more poetic. In any case, I'd stocked up on glass beads in case I ran into any sophants in my wandering, and I had a storage locker full of weapons-grade plutonium. Medicines don't work from biochemistry to biochemistry. Cultural artifacts that are beautiful to one species leave another cold. But everyone loves weapons-grade plutonium. The box's civilization ran on it. Their world hadn't had life long enough to acquire fossil fuel deposits, so existence was wind and muscle-powered for the peasantry, nuclear-powered for the astronomer aristocracy. But what did these creatures have to offer in return? In answer, I'd been led into a room of gold. Now, I'll grant that gold is a whole lot less rare than it used to be. We have machines for digesting whole asteroids and crapping out the stuff and filtering it out of seawater, but the energy expended in dragging a ton of gold the length of 10 or 11 solar systems, the average length of voyage we're talking node-to-node -node out of the chai loopy goldfields, still makes it valuable. And the Astronomark's treasure room was a wonder to behold. White gold interlaid with red, interlaced with rose, interwoven with black mapped out the heavens, the black gold rendered by nanoscale indents in the metal cut by laser to absorb all light, making it the deep black of vacuum. They'd alloyed gold with aluminium to pick out purple stars, with silver to produce greens, with copper to make pinks. The Pleiades gas clouds had been rendered most lovingly of all in hand-hammered, blade-thin blue-gold sheets with LEDs behind them shining bright. The first thing I noticed was that all the stars were in the wrong place. Their world might be young, but their civilization was old, 
old enough for only the lead stars in the Pleiades to have begun pushing bow waves into the Maya nebula. I remarked on the amount of gold. They asked me, the boneless bastards, whether gold was a thing I was interested in. They claimed gold was a commonplace to them, which was odd as I hadn't seen any jangling on the peasants in the fields. They offered me an obscenely large amount of it, enough to fill my ship, or alternatively, they could offer me the knowledge of where they got their gold. They seemed to have latched onto one human proverb which they used a great deal. The proverb was, Give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day, teach him how to fish and he eats for life. I supposed I should have asked them where they'd learned the proverb. Bastards. Their gold, they said, came from a world orbiting further out in the Atlas A system. It was known by them, of course, that Atlas A had a miniature companion far smaller than the equally gigantic Atlas B, though the companion was far too dim and dense to be anything other than a brown dwarf neutron star or collapsar. In a tight orbit around the companion, the boxes said, anchored in place by star-sized gravity, was a world where gold could be made to walk into the smelter. What did they mean by that? They gave away nothing. But they were perfectly prepared to sell me, for my entire cargo of plute, a set of pusher drives powered by micronuclear explosions, effectively a Daedalus drive, of the sort human beings had envisaged using for traveling from solar system to solar system back in the way back when. Of course, human beings had ended up doing nothing of the sort as we discovered the node system that had allowed us to travel faster than light for free. But Atlas A's dark companion had no node. Evidently, the node builders had not been interested in gold. And the companion star, if star it was, was as far away from Atlas Nine as Jupiter was from the Sun. Only the companion's own dim radiation kept the planet warm. It would be a year there and a year back, but they guaranteed me as much gold as I could get back to A9 with, which I should have realized potentially included, in the event of my not being able to get back to A9 at all, the amount of no gold at all. They sold me the tools to mine the gold and a miniature cyanide plant for refining the ore. In under three years' time, I would be set for life. Careful, Yuri, you'll spook them. The last thing we want's a sympathetic detonation of the whole herd. Yuri, clearly visible in deep camouflage on the other side of the herd of chrysalopes, hissed into his radio. The last thing I am wanting, Alistair, is for him to charge me. He must be massing over 300 kilos. That is 100 kilos of Xenogold Esther bound up in his big, fat, hairy ass. If I am needing to put a bullet in him at close range... The blast will blow the slug back up my pipe and my face around the other side of my head. If anyone is getting spooked here, it is me. The chrysalopes were one of the few herds remaining in our area, one of the few remaining in the whole Gelvillier forest. They stood shoulder-high at the shoulder and had magnificent dorsal crests that would fluoresce visibly at hard dawn if Atlas A were still below the horizon, metabolizing warmth for the beasts out of high-energy X and gamma rays that would kill a human being on contact. They had no natural weapons. They needed none.
Many years ago on Earth, chemists had discovered xenon and gold would form cationic complexes. Out by Atlas A, we'd found out that they'd form polymers. The chrysalope's fat deposits, an essential defense against winter cold that could freeze dry ice out of the air, were not made for carbon-hydrogen triesters, but freakish xenogold analogs. Noble gases and noble metals are very difficult to put together and very, very easy to convince to come apart. How the Lopes synthesized such materials inside themselves was anyone's guess. No zoologists had taken the trouble to get close enough to a live Lope to examine it. Almost certainly, though, it was something to do with the high-energy photons that collected in their dorsal crests. Dead lope flesh also stank of fluorine and burned incautious fingers. The noble molecules were stable only in the presence of fluorine counterions. And they weren't that stable in any event. The fat deposits of a chrysalope, besides keeping it warm through a long, hard winter, were several orders more explosive than nitroglycerin, plastique, or that other gold compound known to medieval alchemists, orum fulminans. The chrysalope's natural defense was to explode if you messed with them, or in occasional cases if they farted too hard. High above, green lamina of auroras rippled in the evening sky, Dark Companion could not be seen, but its position could be inferred from its terrible gravitometric effects on all matter around it. Only the fact that we were still inside the Pleiades cluster made stars visible through the aurorae, and there were aurorae even where we were, close to the equator. Across the clearing, a patch of hackle grass was standing up in the increased magnetic field. Companion rise was approaching. We needed to nail the herd leader and go to ground, get a meter of earth between ourselves and the hard gamma. Easy with the lead pipe, Yuri, or you'll be the one scraping up everything that's left of him into a bucket. But we need to get this done quickly. There's a Z hereabouts, a big one. I saw its foot craters a quarter kilometer back. The radio scoffed in my ear. Z feet are smaller than the craters they are making. They are just traveling fast. I took a swig from the Sweetwater canteen at my belt. Water, water everywhere, was dripping on my head out of the rain jungle, but there was no way of knowing whether it was rain or whether it had dripped out of some form of mitocyte plant life, in which case it would give me heavy metal poisoning and cause organ shutdown weeks in my future. I'm less concerned about the size of its feet and more concerned about the size of the hole it'll leave in me. A lope factory dozer up near Oroke Kamina had its crew killed to a man by one. They had probably provoked it. We are not their natural prey. Lopes aren't our natural prey, but we're doing a hell of a job on them anyway. The Tsi have started trailing the hunting teams. They don't take down lopes normally because lopes and Tsi are an explosive combination, but if they find a carcass, they'll leave the fat and scoff the muscle and organs. Guy back in Croesus Station said they'd started getting hungry enough to dart in and take flesh off the other side of the bone when a robo-processor's already stripping the other. We're killing everything in their food chain. That's gotta piss a life form off. I have the bull in sight now. Just a couple more meters. Brad, spook the rest of them. I don't want them anywhere near him if your ex runs into something hard enough to set him off. The LED pipe was my own design although in actual fact it was an adaptation of a 21st century invention. It fired brilliant pulses of laser light, 
Not enough to permanently blind, but enough to cause a human being to keel over clutching his eyeballs and losing his lunch at the same time. We'd had to experiment to work out the correct frequencies for mitocyte species, many of whom, for obvious reasons, were able to see well into the X-ray spectrum and even, in some cases, into the gamma. Our machine now had two reliable settings, human and chrysalope. The human setting delivered light in a group of wavelengths that could be accurately described as taupe, which I had long suspected to be the color of the devil. Chrysalopes, meanwhile, kingly beasts that they are, preferred the purplest of purples. Once hit in the eye with an LED beam, the beasts would fall to the ground in blank confusion, and once down, a fully grown lope had great difficulty getting up again. The stag would be ours to tranquilize and liposuck. Then, in an hour's time, he'd be bounding away, scared and confused, but alive to grow a fresh layer of fat for next year. This was our grand plan for perpetuating the herds whilst allowing us to drain off our regular bucket of blood. We could get up to a 100 kilos of fatoid from a fully grown lope, which equated to 45 kilos of gold. Truth to tell, we just hadn't got the heart to kill the beasts. We were city kids. Well, I was a city kid. But I'm pretty sure Brad and Yuri hadn't seen a cow or a pig up close till they were in college, much less killed one. Still... It beat being down in the Christopia fields. Anything beat being down in the Christopia fields. Almost have him, but there is a tree in my line of fire. Take the shot, Yuri. He's close enough to that tree to lose it in his forward blind spot anyways. That's why the hammerhead bastard's so close to it. It won't work. You can't see it right from your angle. Take the shot! Someone took the shot. The chrysalope stag disappeared in a blinding orange flash. When I raised myself back up onto my elbows, there was lope blood all over my binoculars. The blood was a dull orange color, the color of vomit. Worse were the fatoid deposits, releasing raw fluorine as soon as they were detonated, hydrofluoric shrapnel causing the trees to hiss around me. I was glad the binocular lenses were polyethylene coated. I knew who'd taken the shot. Jesus! That was Yuri, who was still alive, no thanks to... Balak, you utter, utter wanker! A voice crackled through my earphones on the same channel we'd been using to talk to Yuri. Sorry about that, Macquarie. Trigger finger slipped. Our herd, our hunting ground. If we can't have them, no one will. Brad's hand fell on my shoulder, and she hissed into my ear. Careful. You know how many guns he has working for him. We can't see them, but they can probably see us. Brad stands for Bradamante. It's a made-up medieval romance name, like being called Lancelot only for girls. Brad's parents were Filipinos from a seafloor submarino settlement. You know a place is bad when it's named after a form of torture. Brad's submarino was so infradig, it had a number rather than a name. Brad's mother dreamed of her daughter standing bareheaded under a sun, any sun, breathing unrecycled air. Sometimes her fantasies had run to Brad riding mighty horses through virgin forests and very possibly robbing the rich to feed the poor, hence the name. She was eventually committed, but hey, a gal can dream. He's all over the landscape now. We're trying to save these beasts so we can keep farming them for gold. The radio crackled again. Me, I'm trying to kill as many of them as possible. Don't much care for saving them. Got plenty of non-explosive rounds for all the does and fawns. Then it's back to Earth in a tropical paradise of my own. I'm thinking Madagascar. You spooked the whole rest of the herd. They'll be miles away by now. We got technology on our side. Nothing can outrun an electric car. 
Designed for use in prospecting asteroids, roid rovers had had to be extensively modified to be of any use in gravity this heavy. One-ton weights had to be removed from their centers of gravity to begin with. Leave it, Alistair, whispered Brad. We already have 200 kilos of fatoid. She was remarkably forgiving, considering Balak had just narrowly missed detonating her ex-husband. Yuri had come from a Russian seafloor settlement in the Arctic. The way Brad and Yuri had met had been the stuff of Brad's mother's romances. Both trainee comms operators, they had heard one another's voices on VLF radio, and despite a thousand miles of separation, fallen in love. After they had finally met face-to-face, more prosaic things such as Brad's gat teeth and Yuri's bald head and belly had come to the fore. They were divorced on our third journey out to Canis. Once they were divorced, they got along a whole lot better and their sex life seemed to have improved. And that buys us what in Robinson Aid? A couple nights stay in a hotel I wouldn't piss in back on Earth? A couple square meals we know won't give us heavy metal poisoning? I tore off my radio earpiece and threw it down in disgust. And now the whole herd's dead in any case, and we've been tailing it for months. Maybe the funds will run clear. Maybe we can save Lil Truck Bomb. Lil Truck Bomb was my favorite, a gawky 50-kilo foal that I'd watched slithering out of his egg sack only weeks ago. He was already bigger than stronger than many of the other males around him, and looked set to become an alpha even bigger than his father. Far off in the ever-present mist, we could hear low-velocity rounds popping off, aimed for heart shots and maximum bleed. Balak's crew were practiced at this. We heard none of the does exploding. Warning squeaks issued from the lopelets on the fringe of the herd. Their parents didn't protect them for the first week after birth, and it was their job, by erecting brightly colored crests like flamenco fans, to act as distant early warning. But Balak's team weren't ignoring the juveniles any more than they were the alphas, betas, and does. The lopelets were scattering pell-mell through the trees like a heron in a box of frogs, being taken down in midair for no reason at all. Unless the shooters thought they needed the practice. Lopelets didn't grow substantial fat deposits at this time in the long year around Atlas A. No profit would be gained by shooting them, but the herd would die. I could already see in the middle distance a processing dozer flinging chunks of bleeding orange flesh hither and yon in a blur of Waldo arms. They had already started to carve up the fallen. Seventy-five percent of the kill would almost certainly be lost in payment for booze, food, fuel, and tail for the team back at Robinson Aid. A good deal of the rest would be needed to pay for jerry-building whatever device they were planning to use to boost them back to Atlas A. So far we had no proof anyone had ever made that trip successfully. Dark Companion's magnetic field made radio communication with Atlas A impossible, but every Midasite who'd made the trip knew the drill. To shine back a laser beam at the frequency of one of the Fraunhofer absorption bands for gold when Midas was at Periatalasian to let everyone else know they had made it, that the journey home was feasible. No such signal had ever been received. Whether the jury-rigged nuclear blast engines had given out or the -the jack-in-the-boxes had taken to sandbagging returning prospectors, we had no idea. But no matter, our local engineers were getting more ingenious by the day. Soon we would be able to solve the problem that had killed off all our fusion drives. The lack of any form of helium on Midas to cool the superconductors. Helium was relatively common in the solar system, but out here, gold walked around in ton-sized chunks and helium was a rare earth. And then he came, tearing out of the nearest thicket at our hide as if he'd always known it was there, moving with incredible speed for a three-legged creature. Brad had fed him by hand when he'd been a lopelet, and he charged for her, pursued by tracer fire. 
The rounds produced by Robinsonade's G-Gaw armaments industry were inaccurate and gave a sufficiently small and agile target an even chance of evading a bullet. Brad had no heart to shoot him while he was on the outside of our danger space, and then he was inside our danger space and had leapt up into her arms, knocking her over. When he'd been ever so cute and small, he'd been able to get away with the maneuver. Now he stood over her, looking down, his retractable eyes out on their horns in puzzlement. I could see men trundling our way through the trees, bringing their roid rovers to a stop, homemade weapons rising to their shoulders. I saw Yuri stand up suddenly in front of one, take his weapon off him, and beat him viciously about the head, forearms, and balls with it. The others switched their aim from Lil Truck Bomb to Yuri. Without thinking, I flicked a laser pointer up. It hit one of them dead in the eye. He shielded his face and waved for his companions to back off. He knew what would have followed the laser beam if anything had happened to Yuri. The laser's big brother. I'd made the laser harkaboos out of a cutting torch designed for use in zero gravity. It was almost too heavy to heft around down here, but the beam would leave a hole in a man big enough for him not to feel a tank shell if it came after. Unfortunately, we also only had the one harkaboos, and they had considerably more of their less exotic weapons. Within seconds, I'd also broken out in a bad case of laser dots. Brad, who was still wearing her headset, said, Take the pointer off him, Alistair. Balak is telling you to. He says there'll be what he describes as consequences if you don't. They can take their guns off Yuri first, I said, whilst getting the odd feeling I was listening to some distant suicidal idiot saying it. But Balak might shoot Yuri anyway if I lowered the gun. He was that sort of nice, fun guy. I wasn't sure how long I could hold the heavy barrel up in any case. This might all be academic. And then the man I had the dot on, and down whose barrel I was looking, disappeared in a puff of blood and bile. I could actually smell the gut acid. Something had hit him so fast that it had burst his stomach like a balloon. He was falling to the ground and had not yet hit it before the next man to his left died. And the next, and the next. All I saw of how it happened was a blur, occasionally and tantalizingly decelerating into a suggestion of a shape, of multi-legged, low-slung, spring-loaded limbed efficiency. Red laser threads were swinging confusedly through the mist, searching for the enemy that was already everywhere. I heard Balak's voice fulminating through the grass and snatched up my headset again. That what I thought it was, Macquarie? I think so. It killed three of your men and went to ground. There was a moment's silence. You're a very lucky man, Macquarie. I grinned. Don't have enough guns to finish us off reliably, huh? I'll deal with you later. I'm not in the habit of sticking around when there's a rogue sea. Neither is a rogue sea, said Yuri. You only ever see where they were, not where they are. I'd get the hell out of here quickly if I were you, Balak. Or if it doesn't get you, I will. Thank you for that. I now know which one to do this to. A shot sounded. Yuri yelped and dropped to one knee, hands clasped around the other one. Blood seeped from between his fingers. Be seeing you. Tea like wounded prey, so I hear. They're like cats. They like to play. Gives me time to make my exit. Nothing personal. I heard a sound of backward scuttling through the undergrowth. The radio clicked, and there was nothing more but static. Where is it now? whispered Brad. Anything moving at that speed would send the underbrush flying. Common wisdom has it. Sea probably need to cool down after they move, I said. It might have flopped into a stream or something. What do Tsi look like, you know? 
said Brad, standing still. I shrugged. No one knows. No one's ever seen one do that. No one's ever even found bones. We don't even think they have bones. It's a mystery how they're held together. They're named after a creature in an old Earth novel, a creature that kills so quickly no one ever sees it. I'm going to see to Yuri. Yuri's injured. Balak said see like injured prey. Balak doesn't know what see do any more than I know what nymphomaniac bikini models do. Besides, if they go for injured prey, it'll be going for him, not me. Thanks. That really reassures me. The clearing was only a hundred yards across, but it felt like walking the Sahara. Yuri was lying on his back, still clutching his knee. It wasn't bleeding too badly. No major blood vessels seemed to have been severed. I think the bastard took out my kneecap, he said. We'll get you a shiny new one, I said. Gold titanium alloy. Incorrodible. Indestructible. He appeared to smile, but he was probably gritting his teeth. Don't be stupid. Where are you going to find titanium around here? The undergrowth exploded again in a shower of leaves some distance away to my left. I'd read that it was very difficult to knock a leaf off a tree. Of course, that probably applied to earth leaves and earth trees. Had one of Balak's men still been alive and injured, and was he alive no longer? Keep still, I said. I have enough morphine in this one syringe to make a bull elephant see other pinker bull elephants. It won't make me able to walk. Agreed. You're not going to walk. You are not going to move. I looked out into the now motionless undergrowth. As soon as you start moving, moving broken, it'll attack again. It'll find you interesting. Keep still and you're boring. He exhaled so ecstatically as the syringe went in that I felt as if I was committing a homosexual act. But it'll eat me. Oh, that feels good. Two more bushes detonated close by, leaves drifting across our faces. It evolved to eat life forms with biochemistry so full of heavy metals, their meat tastes like licking cutlery, I said. If it takes a bite out of us, it'll probably die. It's not like a rogue lion. It hasn't suddenly discovered human beings taste good. It's more like a rogue pussycat. It's suddenly discovered tormenting human beings is fun. I backed away gingerly from Yuri. Don't leave, he said. I picked up the lead pipe from where he'd let it fall and pressed it back into his hands. It was not as heavy as the harquebus, but not as accurate either. It might also be useless against the sea. Human eyes and insect eyes have completely different visible spectra, after all, and they come from the same world. The chrysalope setting might not work on the other Midas animals. I turned round slowly, searching the trees around me for stuff I didn't know how to look for, stuff that moved too fast to see. Too fast to see? Yuri, turn the strobe effect up on the lead pipe, way up, as high as it'll go and set it to maximum dispersal. He fumbled with the settings. Which one is the strobe? Metal rheostat on the left-hand side, big as your thumb. I didn't have time to make it fancy. Check. Oh, what do you want me to do now? I'm going to walk away from you. I want you to sight up on me and shoot me. Why? I inhaled through gritted teeth. Because I'm where it's going to be. Before he could object or ruin our friendship by not objecting, I started limping theatrically away from him, dragging one leg along behind me like a dead weight. I heard nothing. Hardly surprising, of course. I was making far too much noise myself, moving like this, to hear anything sneaking up. I felt faintly ridiculous. These woods, albeit these spine-leaved alien woods, had never before felt like anything sinister might lurk within them, anything that didn't walk around on two legs, that was. 
I only had time to flick my head sideways to see it, a clear line of collapsing vegetation streaking directly towards me. The lead pipe flared behind me like another sun. There was a sound like a crowbar jammed in an electric fan, and something blurred into existence, skidding out of control through the thicket. Then there was a sickening crack like wood breaking, and the blur became solid, wrapped right around a tree stump like a fox fur. I looked down at it. It was over twice the length of a man and shaped like a sine wave, except that the tree had spoiled the effect. Occasionally it broke into claws and teeth and, so help me, horns. Less like horns, in fact, than like the bill on the front of a swordfish. Don't want to lose it at speed, I said. Behind me I could hear a regular wet thumping sound. I turned to see Yuri, his head striking rhythmically against a tree root, drool coming from the corner of his mouth. Yuri! Yuri! It got Yuri! Brad rushed out of the woods, heedless of the possibility that there might be a hunting pack of Z rather than just the one. For a divorced lady, she was certainly concerned for her ex-husband's welfare. No, it didn't. The strobe was just turned up too high for safety. I figured Z eyes had to re-render the environment far more times per second than ours, or they wouldn't be able to run through the woods so fast. Yuri must be susceptible to high-frequency strobe. He's just having an epileptic fit. The same thing happened to the Z, only it was traveling at a hundred kilometers per hour when it had one. Just an epileptic fit? Put something soft underneath his head, he'll probably be fine. As I turned back round to it, the Z's body vibrated so rapidly that its flesh became as substantial as a hummingbird's wing. This was also vibrating all the swords and claws centimeters from my nose. I gave it a little squirt from the harquebus to pacify it being not overly concerned about non-lethal force at this point. Blood blasted back out onto my trigger hand. The blood felt like salt in an open wound. I yelped and jumped backwards, felling a tree with the harquebus in panic. I was uncomfortably aware that Brad was already pointing a gun in my direction. Don't panic. I'm okay. But the blood, it's blood burns. Stupidly, Brad walked over, dabbed a finger in the blood on my hand, licked it, and said, No, it doesn't. Experimentally, I tried the same thing with my offhand. You're right, you're right. Why are you right? Don't look at me like me being right is a weird thing, chief. I don't mean it like that. Anyhow, we need to get Yuri below ground now. We've got under an hour to build a shelter with a meter of earth cover. We haven't got time to dig down. We'll have to cut turf and make a lean-to. We'll build it round him. Go get the rover. He'll be okay. He's just fitting. He'll stop fitting. Probably. Run. She hesitated, searching for reasons to object, found none, and raced away. I still don't see why we have to tote this stinky piece of offal with us. That's a terrible way to talk about your ex-husband. Don't say bad things about him while he's too far gone to hear, said Brad. Behind her, Yuri cooed and chortled softly in his opium dream. She had, of course, been talking about the Tsi carcass. I trussed it up with wire and slung it on the back of the tractor. No one had ever properly seen a Tsi. I told Brad it would make us local celebrities in Croesus and Robinsonade. We might dine out on it. Certainly it would be slim pickings otherwise. We'd come home with no fatoid in our hoppers. The tractor, on autopilot, had taken us down out of Gulvillier Wood into the more populated country, where people could see what people were doing to other people. 
There was little danger of anyone shooting anyone else in the back down here. I could stop checking how close my gun hand was to the harquebus every ten seconds. We were safe in Chrysopia Fields. These were not our fields, of course, and not actual working fields either, but dead fields, fields where live weeds were running riot. Strangling crops, the crops looked, to my non-mitocyte eyes, more like giant weeds than the weeds did, huge purple-flowered pyramidal surrounded by bird's nests of coiling androsia, each sitting in its own appointed place on the terrace. Down here, it was so possible for people to see what was being done to other people that... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That the memory might never be erased. Gulvalier Forest wasn't a wild area. It was a hunting preserve. Every tree had been planted deliberately, artfully even. The place showed signs of landscaping. Further down Plateau, Chrysopia Fields was what the rest of the world looked like. They had built irrigation channels down from the reservoirs in the hills to water the fields, which also grew a crop with thick stilt roots that lifted itself clear of the water like a mangrove. They had taken a plant that evidently habitually grew in the massive tidal shallows that took up half the planet and learned how to grow it a thousand kilometers inland. It had taken brains to do that. They were lining up in hundreds in the fields, sallow, gray-skinned, often injured, limping, leaning against each other for support, three-legged like lopes, moving on two sturdy forelegs and one heavy rear. Heads like Great Cthulhu, both mandible and manipulatory appendage. Faces only a mother could love. And they did have mothers, having two sexes like we did, and those mothers cradled their young in those horrible tentacles. The young looked tiny, scared, trembling. They lived underground, of course, to protect themselves against hard day. Had lived underground. Their dwellings were now either being dynamited or taken over by human pioneers. 
The pioneers had also built the new, humane structures lined up in the fields, the ones with the long lines, the ones that looked so popular at first glance. They felt no pain when they went into the devices. There was some sort of electric shock or chemical poison. I was unacquainted with the exact details. I had been assured by a drunken engineer, however, that no pain was involved. Probably can't feel pain like we do anyhow. Then the innards of the device, my engineer's pride and joy, described in over-vivid detail, went to work, reducing the body of the creature, flesh, gristle, and skeleton, to mush in under a minute and squirting it into the main cyanide vat, where the gold would be removed. Up to a hundred grams of gold could be obtained per inhabitant. They had a system of writing based on dots placed above and below a line. They had a system of mathematical notation which allowed numbers to be expressed in multiple bases. They buried their dead. You're saying to yourself, of course, if gold was all around, why didn't they mine it out of the ground? Why didn't they just build giant ore processors and tear the planet apart? People have known for years that planets have a carbon cycle, a period of constant replenishment by volcanic outgassing of carbon dioxide absorbed back into the planet. Once a planet's carbon cycle finishes, complex life on that planet dies out. All the carbon gets swallowed up in the crust and never finds its way out again. What we hadn't appreciated before arriving on Midas is that big heavy metal planets have a gold cycle too. Oh sure, life on Midas has evolved to cope with massive quantities of gold, to the extent in fact that it now couldn't live without it. And the gold cycle on Midas had stopped. Life had been dying out here long before we had even arrived. Now the gold was locked up deep within the planetary mantle, too deep for us to reach without a mohole. But one percent of it was still walking around on the surface, and that one percent was measured in megatons. And if life had already been dying out, why not help it along a little? What's the harm in that? Squeeze a million years of decline into a thousand. They were going to die anyway. Where's the harm? It was an accepted fact, of course, that the good human settlers of Midas were not without consciences. For this reason, the men and women who, de facto, owned the fields had posted armed guards with sullen, unforgiving eyes around the lines, in case one of the aforementioned conscientious settlers should attempt to sabotage operations. So far, no one had. If anything, the owners were guarding the fields against their own consciences. I kept my gaze straight ahead, as I always did driving through the lower fields. Little truck bomb was still riding with us, standing on the center line of the tractor, on the transaxle housing, his eye stalks agog at the wonders of civilization. The stately carved Galena dwellings the aboriginal Midasites had recently vacated were approaching. I could see one of the more advanced life forms that had replaced them, trousers round its ankles, squatting in its new front doorway, taking a shit and smoking. It grinned and waved at us as we passed by. A gold necklace, heavy enough to bludgeon a man to death with, hung from it. Men carried their wealth on them in Robinsonade. It was less easy to steal. Where are we going to stay? said Brad. We don't have money for the Wendy house or Sootpil's kraal. 
Robinsonade had only occupied the very center of the Midasite city on our journey out. Now it seemed to be expanding out into the suburbs. It was evidently taking time to process the entire population. We're not going to stay anywhere, I said. We're heading straight to Uncle Quan's genery. We have some cloning to organize. Cloning, said Brad. The tea blood, I said. It burned. Which means what, said Brad. Which is why they don't need a skeleton. Their innards are held up by their own blood pressure. I reached over to the tea carcass, pulled the wound I'd made wider with my thumb. See how thick the insulation on their skin is? They're living pressure vessels. They're boiling inside. Brad was puzzled. Why would they want to be like that? They wouldn't. It's a side effect of their muscles transmitting that much power. The waste heat has to go somewhere. Skipper, tell me what this has to do with cloning, or I'm going to shoot you myself. Everything on Midas uses gold compounds in its biochemistry, and one of the uses of gold is in superconductors. A lot of the sea life up near Midas's poles uses superconducting magnets in place of conventional muscle fiber. Tracer squid, those really bright bullet-shaped things that skip out of the sea on wings and bioluminesce like crazy, the ones with the shoals we could see from orbit, they can only make their siphons expand and contract that quickly because their musculature superconducts. But this baby, this little ray of sunshine, I slapped the wrinkled carcass, superconducts at high temperature, really high temperature. She stiffened. She had understood. The coolant, the helium problem. All we need, I said, is access to a biolab and decent cloning facilities. We don't need coolant anymore. We have high-temperature superconductors right here on our doorstep. All our home-going problems are over. All everyone's home-going problems are over. Of course, I said, we could insist everybody buy their superconductor compound from us. For gold, of course, at a reasonable price. She took a look back at the fields. I don't think so, Alistair. I think we just equip our ship, get out of this place, and leave them to their gold. She'd persuaded me. That's right. That's absolutely right. I was just testing you. Besides, what use will gold be to us? Unless you have a mountain of any metal nowadays, you're nobody. But a high-temperature superconductor working above the boiling point of water. I concluded, that's worth what a mountain of gold would have been worth before spaceflight, gold enough to make a leprechaun green with envy. Leprechauns, burbled Yuri from the back seat with admirable lucidity for a man who could probably see them by now, are already green. The tractor shuddered to a halt outside Uncle Quan's where I'd told it to. Far behind us, I watched a straight-backed, proud-statured Midasite walk into one of the field killers— Holding a smaller mitocyte in its tentacles, the door closed, the device hummed efficiently, and did its work. The next mitocyte in line stepped up. Just before we leave, I said, I would like to put a homemade grenade in one of those cyanide bowsers. Poof! Cyanide gas all over the settlement. You know it doesn't kill mitocytes? Maybe they'll get the idea. The idea how to fight back. Brad shook her head. The better type of Australian settler thought the same thing looking at the Aborigines, Alistair. Maybe if they figure out how to make guns somehow. Maybe if they work out how they could throw flaming boomerangs into the powder magazine. It won't happen. They're a lame duck civilization. Their great crime is the same great crime as the Africans. To have been useful. 
They say the useless tree, the gnarled tree, the tree full of knots and twists, is always the oldest tree in the village. Do you know why that is? I shrugged. Because old trees get like that? Because no one ever bothered to cut it down. Now stop philosophizing and help me get Yuri's stretcher down from the wagon. I stepped down from the rover. In the field outside the settlement, the doors continued to open and close. Open and close. Open and close. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Dominic's. Dominic, thank you so much, sir. And we played a number of stories by Dominic, and Dominic's one of the type, you know, I keep on harping on about sofa notes. It'd be lovely to get Dominic on there and talk about, you know, his life and times and his stories and roads, because it's just fantastic. Do you know what I mean? We played, like I say, a number of the clockwork atom bomb, and he's got butterfly bomb there, the coat of many colours, lots of stories, and like I say, it just hits the point for me. Excellent. Dominic, thank you so much. So next up is the. It's, a, it's not the main. <laughs> See what you do when you mess things, turn things around. Next up is a fact article. It's by our very own JJ Campanella. Jim, sir, science news squire. Greetings and post thanatonic reproductions, my recontaneous listeners, and welcome to this November 2013 science news update. I'm your host for this exceedingly loverly science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving in the U.S. That signals the beginnings of the holiday season in the States here. And today is the most crazy travel day of the entire year here in the U.S. as people go off to their families in every part of the country. It is insane here for the next 24 hours, and I expect half my students will not show up for class today. However, here I am, demented and faithful, as always, getting you the hard-hitting science news that you need to get through your day, taking time out of my crazy day here just for you. All right, I'm fibbing a little. I recorded this about a week ago. But seriously, I'm still busy. All right, let's get going here. First story of the night. Guppies can reproduce from beyond the grave. Yes, it's a zombie story. Everybody loves zombie stories. Although, well, really, this isn't exactly a zombie story, even though it sounds like a zombie story. This story was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B last month and came out of Dr. Andres Lopez Sepulcher's laboratory at the uh, Laboratoire d'Ecologie et Evolution in Paris. The uh, article has the titillating title, Beyond Lifetime Reproductive Success, the Posthumous Reproductive Dynamics of Male Trinidadian Guppies. We know that humans can reproduce from beyond the grave using more than a bit of technical help with frozen sperm and or frozen ova, but believe it or not, male guppies can reproduce for up to a year after their death without using tanks of liquid nitrogen to store their hopeful little gametes. In the Trinidadian guppy, under laboratory conditions, and that's important, Female guppies are able to store sperm for up to a year, potentially allowing them to produce offspring even if the males are no longer around. However, isn't there always a however, several other studies have suggested that the last male to mate with a female ends up fertilizing the bulk of her offspring. This last male in advantage may mean that stored sperm is rarely used by guppies out in the wild. Since those two ideas contradict, Lopez Sepulcher 
was obviously interested in which hypothesis was the correct one. So his group introduced individually marked guppies with known genetic fingerprints to a river in Trinidad, which was isolated from existing downstream guppy populations by a swiftly flowing waterfall. Then over a year, the researchers painstakingly caught and identified almost every guppy larger than 13 millimeters in size in the study site to determine when each guppy died. They also collected a few scales from each guppy born at the field site so that mother and father could be determined using genetic fingerprinting. I have done work similar to this to track populations, and my hat's off to these guys because I know how tedious and painstaking the work can be. So once Lopez Sepulcher got his genetic data, he developed a complex mathematical model to estimate the reproductive contributions of dead males to the introduced guppy population. He found that almost 50% of the reproductively active males sired young after they had died, and even more weird, over 30% of the reproductive males were successful only after they were dead. That's a bit like Vincent van Gogh in his paintings, which people only seem to value after he died. Some of the offspring were even fathered by males that had been dead for as long as eight months. Lopez Sepulcher proposes that such long-lived sperm and being carried by the female allows relatively short-lived males, they live about three months, to continue to mate with females with much longer lives of up to 15 months. He also suggested that sperm storage would allow the genetic material of male guppies to survive the rainy season when males die in much higher numbers than females. The paper also proposes that any female using sperm from many males, both dead and alive, would produce offspring with higher genetic diversity. The environment of water habitats are notoriously unreliable, so greater genetic diversity would increase the odds of offspring that are genetically well-suited to whatever environmental conditions the future has in store. By the end of the year-long study, Lopez Sepulcher founded that posthumously conceived guppies comprised almost 25% of the total population. If 25% of the population were actually from dead fathers, that suggests that the strategy of using stored sperm is very important to guppies. Also, anybody who's studying animals that store sperm in the female after death had better consider that next time they start to study genetic diversity in those species and take it into account. Next story. UCLA astronomer Dr. David Jewett and his team have found something strange and unusual in the sky out there that is our solar system. They report all about it in this month's Astrophysical Journal Letters. This is another one of those space stories which supports the old axiom that the more we think we know, the less that appears to be the case. I remember back when I was in grade school and my teachers first talked about comets and asteroids. I thought it was all very neat. And it certainly helped contribute to my fervor for SF. And as I've reported at one point, I really did want to become an astrophysicist. Anyway, comets have some rocky material and dust, but they're mostly made of ice. Asteroids are solid and comprised of rock and metal. Asteroids tend to hang out closer to the sun, while comets start farther away from the sun. And as they get closer to the sun, their ice starts to vaporize which is what gives a comet its tail. More rare than asteroids, comets have much bigger orbits and don't bunch together. And that has pretty much been my model for understanding comets and asteroids ever since grade school. Well, Jewett has found an object that is a 
bit different from any comet or asteroid yet detected. Using the Hubble telescope, he locked in on a mystery object, and that object appears to be a comet. But it looks like a comet on crack, quote-unquote, according to Jewett. Jewett and his team call the object P-2013 P5, and it projects gas and dust in all directions, like a spinning firecracker. While Jewett studied it for two weeks in September, its appearance changed and seemed to have turned around. The tail also looked like a changed structure. It looked like a comet with multiple tails, in fact. Jewett says that it may not even be a comet at all. Quote, it's possible that this is an asteroid that over time experienced uneven heating by the sun, which caused its rotation to increase enough for it to emit gases and other materials. In other words, the asteroid may be shedding its own matter, unquote. Jewett has produced computer models that demonstrate how an asteroid whose rotation had been sped up by the sun could experience sudden dust ejection from the increasing centrifugal force, which would explain the multiple tails. Astronomers will continue to monitor the so-called comet asteroid, specifically to see if the dust jets are emanating from the asteroid's equator, which would help confirm the theory. Right now, Jewett estimates that the object has lost 100 to 1,000 tons of dust, which is really only a small fraction of its total mass, because you see, this thing is about a quarter of a kilometer across. Next story. For anyone who's ever lived in a stinky, mold-infested house, this next story should not come as much of a surprise. Rutgers University fungus expert Dr. Joan Bennett has just published an article this month in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that suggests that certain strains of fungi may actually cause neurological damage. Bennett became interested in the effects of molds on the nervous system after seeing some amazing new strains of fungus in the aftermaths of the two superstorms, Hurricanes Sandy and Katrina, that hit the U.S. in the last few years. There were some reports of illness associated with mold infestations, but it was unclear how the illnesses were induced. Sandy's fungi were stranger than Katrina's because they grew in cold weather and not only in cold weather, but in salt water as well. So Bennett decided to expose fruit flies to various chemicals emitted by the molds. One mold in particular dubbed mushroom alcohol mold by the Japanese scientist who isolated it in the 1930s had an immediate impact on the fruit flies. The fruit flies displayed tremors, a slow gait, with postural imbalance and problems with locomotion. Basically, they looked like they had Parkinsonism. All of those signs were consistent with Parkinsonism, in fact, or Parkinson's disease, if you want to call it that. Bennett further showed that the toxic chemicals produced by the fungi were able to block two important genes that actually regulate dopamine, the chemical that allows nerve cells to communicate. And in fact, it's been well documented that problems with low dopamine levels are well known to be connected to Parkinsonism. Bennett states, quote, We tried to expose the fruit flies to chemicals at the level one would encounter in moldy buildings, not a super-dense dose that doesn't mimic any experience in the real world. Small trace amounts of mold people smell now and then are probably not enough to trigger the neurological damage of a hurricane-level amount of house mold. It's only when people are continuously exposed in enclosed rooms or cellars that they might be affected. Unquote. The chemical that's produced by these nasty fungi is a volatile organic compound called 
amyl vinyl carbonyl. Bennett says, quote, the gas is more toxic than industrial chemicals like benzene. So far, none of the people exposed to this alcohol find it anything but unpleasant. Perhaps people universally find the smell of mold to be unpleasant, and it's an evolutionary signal to tell us that it's very dangerous, unquote. There are two important points to be extracted from this fungi story. First, a mold in your house is not something to just ignore. Depending on the strain of the mold and the severity of the incursion, it may be a long-term and toxic problem that will cause you neurological damage in the long term. The second thing to think about, if you know a friend or a relative with a mold-infested house who seems to have Parkinson-like symptoms or even mild dementia, there may be more to what you are seeing than simply an organic disease. Just something to think about. The next story comes from the October issue of the journal Nucleic Acids Research, and it raises a question that you may have never thought about. The question almost seems philosophical in some sense, but it has its basis in the very innermost aspects of genetics. And the question is this. Why is the genetic code the genetic code? Why isn't it some other code? At this point, I could hear my listeners saying, What's he dribbling on about? Isn't that like asking why is water water? Or why air is air? Isn't the genetic code just what it is? Well, let me clarify and remind you of some of your high school and college biology. Remember that the genetic code itself is embedded in our DNA and codes for making proteins. Proteins are the workhorses of the cell that do all the signaling, create all the structure, and perform all the biochemical functions that not only determine who we are, but keep all organisms alive from moment to moment. So yes, proteins are very important. DNA is made up of four bases, G, A, T, and C, as everyone knows. And genes code for proteins in the most simple sense by putting together triplet codons of Gs and Ts and Cs and As. For example, the triplet in the DNA for the amino acid phenylalanine, used popularly to make artificial sweetener, is AAA in DNA and UUU when it is converted into messenger RNA, which is then read to make the protein itself. There are 61 triplet codons for the 20 amino acids that make up the proteins in every cell of our body. These codons are essentially universal for every organism on the face of the earth. Whether you are a shrew, a shrike, an oak tree, a bacteria, or a human, the code is the same for everything and everybody. So here's the question. How did we end up with the code that we have now? Why does UUU code for phenylalanine and not methionine or glutamate or some other amino acid? Numerous theories, all unproven, attempt to explain this mystery. In the 1960s, Carl Woese proposed what he called the stereochemical hypothesis. That hypothesis suggested that the code evolved as a result of RNA coming into direct contact with the amino acids that it codes for and being selected very specifically based on its three-dimensional shape. Another theory proposed by Francis Crick of DNA structure fame is that the code evolved from the last common universal ancestor and is an accident frozen in time. In other words, the code just happened by accident really early on in the evolution of life. We're talking several billion years ago here and we were just stuck with it from that point on. 
The new study that I mentioned earlier suggests that messenger RNAs and the proteins they code for bind to each other in a complementary fashion, a finding that furthers the stereochemical hypothesis, according to Dr. Borjan Zagrovich of the University of Vienna. Recently, researchers have found examples of messenger RNA protein interactions involving metabolic enzymes and transcription factors, as well as other proteins that were not previously expected to bind to mRNAs. And in this new study, Zagrovich performed in silico experiments, that is, on a computer, and analyzed the interfaces between RNA and protein, for which 299 three-dimensional structures were available in the International Protein Data Bank. They used a predetermined distance cutoff of eight angstroms or less to identify RNA bases and amino acids that come into close contact, and from this they derived the preferences of the 20 natural amino acids for the four RNA bases. At protein-RNA interfaces, amino acids tend to contact nucleotide bases that correspond with their own codons. The group also found a high level of matching between mRNA composition and corresponding amino acid stretches. When they analyzed the human proteome and the coding sequences of the corresponding mRNAs, from the protein database. Zagrovich says, quote, There are many scenarios where contact between an mRNA and its protein could have functional significance. For some proteins, it could provide a means of translational control. There's a long list of proteins that do that. It's just that the physiochemical principles have not been yet elucidated, unquote. Of course, all this work is still theoretical because Zagrovich is performing it all on computers and creating models. The new study suggests that proteins bind their mRNAs, but the interactions might not be specific. Zagrovich does understand this and states, quote, The biggest next frontier is trying to test some of these ideas experimentally. The question is, will a protein bind to its own mRNA, unquote. His research group plans to start doing lab experiments and examining purified mRNA and protein in test tubes before looking more closely at interactions in cells. They also plan to examine whether unrelated mRNAs can match up to a protein as well as related ones do. I guess that the interesting thing about all this work is that the hypotheses for why the code is what it is are still both valid at this point. The genetic code was actually frozen into place billions of years ago, as Crick suggested. However, it was probably not accidentally frozen in the way that it was frozen. There was a biochemical reason for it. The next story asks a question that never really occurred to me, except possibly in the context of Disney movies. One of the weird themes that I've seen over the years in Disney movies is the loss of the sense of smell in old bloodhounds. I saw this first decades ago in Lady and the Tramp, and more recently in the non-animated movies about golden retriever puppies, the so-called buddy movies. But the question is, how do old dogs deal with the loss of that sense of smell, which is so essential to their abilities? Well, we can expand this question to other animals. How do cats deal with the loss of a perfect sense of balance as they age? How do monkeys deal with uh, the loss of excellent eyesight? Or for that matter, how do dolphins, who depend on their hearing more than any other sense to communicate, and move through the water, deal with hearing loss as they age? Or do they even have hearing loss? As humans age, sounds have to be louder to be heard, and high-pitched sounds are no longer perceived. 
But are humans alone in suffering auditory decline with age? Certainly in captive dolphins, older members of the family do show signs of age-related hearing loss, but the same has never been observed in the wild. When a 40-year-old male Pacific humpback was rescued after it had been stranded in an inland river near Foshan, China in 2012, Dr. Songhai Li from the Sanya Institute of the Chinese Academy of Sciences took advantage of the situation to determine if the dolphin had any hearing loss. The results of Lee's experiments were published this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Lee began by giving the rescued dolphin a hearing test. Three electrodes were placed on the dolphin's head and back to measure electrical activity in response to a range of different sounds. She then varied both the frequency, the kilohertz of the sounds, and the loudness to find the lowest threshold of hearing, namely the frequency of the quietest detected sound. For the 40-year-old dolphin, this corresponded to a sound of about 38 kilohertz. Lee then compared that result with a hearing test from a younger 13-year-old male dolphin that had been stranded in a similar spot back in 2007. Lee's team found that in the younger dolphin, this threshold was at a higher frequency. Overall, the results showed that the older dolphin had more difficulty hearing high-frequency sounds, with a cutoff of about 30 to 40 kilohertz lower than the younger dolphin. Lee next went on to record the dolphin's echolocation clicks using a hydrophone. Overall, compared with the younger dolphin, the older dolphin's peak and center click frequencies were about 16 kHz lower. That shift suggests that the older dolphin shifted its echolocation clicks toward frequencies that it's able to hear because its hearing was getting worse. Both the decreased sensitivity to high-frequency calls and the compensation and vocalizations strongly suggest that wild dolphins also suffer from hearing loss. All this could be a fluke since it's based on one dolphin, but certainly it supports the hypothesis that even out in nature, aging animals begin to lose their senses as they age. Frankly, I'm not sure if that's a reassuring fact or just a depressing one. Speaking of Disney movies, the next story reminded me of the Pixar Disney movie Up. You may remember that the elderly hero in that movie, Carl, finds some dogs in the deepest reaches of the Amazon who have been outfitted with special devices that convert their barks into human speech. That ability for dogs to speak and make known their thoughts brings up some very comical situations in the film. Well, here is a story from the journal The Scientist, which discusses creating technology which will enable dogs to communicate better with humans. Perhaps not artificial voices quite yet, but that may come soon. Dr. Melody Jackson has been an assistance dog trainer for almost 20 years. She also created and directs the Georgia Tech University's Brain Lab, which aims to develop brain-computer interfaces to allow people with severe disabilities to communicate and control their environments. Jackson has long shared her lab space with Georgia Tech colleague Dr. Tad Starner, technical lead and manager on Google Glass. You may remember that as Google's wearable computer that seems to be all the rage right now. When Jackson met Starner's collaborating industrial designer on Google Glass, Dr. Clint Ziegler, Ziegler happened to mention he had a friend who made vests for assistance dogs. Eventually, the three lab mates came up with the idea of combining all their expertise to design a wearable technology for assistance dogs in the form of a high-tech vest. 
in a project now known as FIDO, F-I-D-O, Facilitating Interactions for Dogs with Occupations, the group is constructing dog vests studded with a variety of sensors that the service dog can be trained to activate. The researchers are using the dog's natural behaviors, such as tugging, biting, and touching things with their noses, to create pull, bite, and motion sensors that should be fairly easy for the dogs to activate. The sensors are fitted onto off-the-shelf dog vests, the kind worn by assistance dogs in public to signal their role as a working animal. So far, the team has built and tested four sensors, two differently shaped bite sensors, a tug sensor made of a rubber ball sewn to a stretch resistor, and a proximity sensor similar to the hand wave sensor on an automatic paper towel dispenser, which a dog can activate with a swipe of its nose. This is essentially a wearable computer for a dog. Jackson and her colleagues are now designing new sensors that are easier for the dogs to activate. These include an omnidirectional bite sensor that doesn't have to be held in a specific orientation to sense the bites, uh, and buttons made out of embroidered conductive thread that would not add any bulk to the actual vest. Once the sensors are refined, the three researchers envision infinite possibilities for guide dogs. Activating a sensor could result in a pre-recorded auditory response, something Jackson has already demonstrated with a dog that she has trained to discriminate between his ball and his frisbee. Wearing a multi-sensor vest, the dog can tug the appropriate device when presented with one of the two toys, and a speaker on the vest announces, That's a ball! Or, That's a frisbee! Of course, I would probably program in, Squirrel! Myself, but... You guys already know I'm a bit nuts. Auditory responses are just one of the many things the sensors could be programmed to do. Jackson's team is also linking up the vests with Bluetooth technology so that a swipe of the nose or a tug of a ball could send a text message or an email. In other words, the guide dog could send a signal in an emergency to the proper authorities if something very bad goes wrong with its master. None of the researchers mentioned whether they were inspired by the Pixar movie or not. The last story of the evening is another in our continuing line of titillating sex-related stories. All right, well, reproduction-related stories. Among humans, it takes a special kind of male to be sexually attracted to a bearded lady. Of course, first of all, there are not that many bearded ladies around, and second, there are probably not that many males who are actually attracted to them. My point is, though, that human males are not generally attracted to females with secondary male sex characteristics. This goes back through millions of years of evolution because presumably such traits suggest a mate that is less than able to reproduce successfully. And that kind of makes sense. If you're going to mate to have children, you want there to be no confusion over your mate's gender or the ability to bear those children. But such value judgments are not just for humans or even mammals for that matter. Dr. Tracy Langkild of Pennsylvania State University reported in the November issue of Biology Letters that male eastern fence lizards like ladies that look like ladies. The male of the species have bright blue patches outlined in black along their throats and abdomens. About three-fourths of the females have smaller, less vibrant blue patches, giving them the cute name of bearded ladies. When given a choice of two females in a lab experiment, the male lizards preferred to mate with those with fewer or no blue scales. Also, males that did mate with bearded ladies 
had resulting egg clutches that weighed less than those of the more feminine lizards. The masculine females also laid eggs 13 days later than the beardless lizards. The findings suggest that the beardless females may reproduce better, making them more attractive to the males. So why are there still bearded lizard females? How come they haven't just disappeared if nobody wants to reproduce with them? You would expect that they would be selected against because they don't reproduce as well. Well, Dr. Langkild speculates that bearded females might persist because they are more aggressive in fending off female competitors and predators. In other words, if you're one of those girly girl lizards, you do not mess with the bearded lady lizards or you will find out what badasses they are and get the sharp end of the stick. Wow. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember, stay away from moldy houses and those dangerous bearded lady lizards, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, Jim. What can I say? What can I say, sir? Thank you. Next up, or last up is, I'm going to play a little promo for Amy, our Amy H. Sturgis. She's teaching her Mythgard Institute again, and it's all about Gothic literature. Ames. Hello, I'm Dr. Amy H. Sturgis, and in the spring semester of 2014, it will be my privilege to offer the course The Gothic Tradition with the Mythgard Institute at Signum University. This course will be offered for 12 weeks, completely online, available to students internationally, both students seeking master's degrees and auditing students who simply wish to take the course for the love of the subject. Students may attend twice-weekly interactive lectures live or download them as video or audio files to enjoy at their convenience. The course includes a variety of ways that students may converse with me and with their classmates. The Gothic literary tradition began in the mid-18th century in Europe and lives on in various forms across the globe through contemporary fiction, poetry, art, music, film, and television. Mad scientists, blasted heaths, abandoned ruins, elusive ghosts, charming vampires, and even little green men people its stories, with ingredients such as a highly developed sense of atmosphere extreme emotions, including fear and awe, and emphases on the mysterious and the paranormal. Gothic works tend to express anxieties about social, political, religious, and economic issues of the time, as well as rejection of prevailing modes of thought and behavior. This course will investigate the fascinating and subversive Gothic imagination, from the haunted castles of Horace Walpole to the threatening aliens of H.P. Lovecraft, from Dracula to Coraline. Identify the historical conditions that have inspired it. Consider how it has developed across time and place and medium. And explore how it has left its indelible imprint on the modern genres of science fiction and fantasy. We will be studying texts from four different centuries, exploring topics such as the father of the Gothic, Horace Walpole, the mother of the Gothic, Anne Radcliffe, and the siblings of the Gothic, the Bronte sisters, as well as the American Gothic, including the New England, Southern, 
Black, and Native Gothic traditions, as well as the Creatures of the Night, the Cosmic Gothic, the Psychological Gothic, and the Meta-Gothic, as well as the Gothic in children's literature, television, and film. I do hope you will join us for our journey through centuries of the Gothic tradition. Please visit MythGuard.org for more details. Thank you. There you go. I'll put a link on for Amy's site. You know, please pop over there. And, you know, if you, if you do want to be interested in that, like, who better to teach you than Ames? You know what I mean? All live video and everything like that. So, fantastic. And I want to mention as well that Ames has got an, a video to accompany that little promo as well, which I'll put a link on at the site as well. So, pop over and have a look. Ames, thank you so much. I will, um, I will keep on harping on about this. That is today's show then. There you go. How about that? Recorded in the evening. Pitch black at quarter five. Oh man, it's not right. Yes, I have the Christmas tree lights. Oh yes. We've got we've had these bloody things up for two weeks now, man. So there we go. Anyway, until next week, I'd just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Distortion Sofa of Activation Procedure Initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be open. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.